So last week, Pastor Matt went through chapters eight and nine. We do have a lot of work tonight. We're gonna go through two chapters. We are in chapters 10 and 11. Got a couple of, one doozy of a chapter. Um, Last week ended beautifully. Um, Matt talked about Mephibosheth uh, being welcomed to dine at the king's table and the grace that King David um, showed him. And it was, I was listening to it and I'm like, man, this is a beautiful ending. I wish my chapter next week ended that beautifully. Um, So if you don't know, we will be talking about David and Bathsheba tonight. So that will be in chapter 11. Um, We are first going to be in chapter 10. So just so you know, we'll go through chapter 10, we'll go through chapter 11, and then we'll spend most of the time at the end kind of breaking down what we've just digested. So we'll stop a couple times throughout the way and, and look at a couple of things, but the bulk of what we uh, really discuss will be towards the end when we're done with chapter 11. So 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse one. After this, so to catch you up if you've missed, the last few chapters we've seen King David's reign as king and his accomplishments. They continue now in chapter 10, sorry. So here we go, verse one. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, verse two, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, and his father dealt, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. David, what we've seen so far, long memory, very faithful. His word is important to him. He is a man who is faithful to his word, and he is a statesman as a leader. So he has this relationship with this king, and he feels this allegiance because of their family and the way that they have treated him. He's got good motives. He shows kindness. What we'll end up seeing in this chapter is that he has repaid evil for good, which is not usually what you see, but that is what happens here in this chapter. He sends representatives from his government, maybe uh, military Uh, members of his cabinet or whatever, but they just go in goodwill. And it says in verse three, but the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, exposing them, and sent them away. So David makes this goodwill gesture, sends his guys, they go there, um, obviously in good faith, there's nothing shady or deceptive about what David is doing in this situation. And Hanun doesn't actually initially believe that, but it's the counsel he gets from the people around him. Suspicious, critical, He's out to get us. He's trying to spy on us. What's he up to? I think we know those kind of people. Suspicious, critical people. Everything and everyone is out to get them. We have a few of those in our life. And sadly, it almost feels like, it's almost like self-fulfilling prophecy at times. Like people weren't really out to get them, but now they just find themselves always surrounded in some sort of drama. Sadly, the counsel from these guys cost people, thousands of people, their lives as we go on through this and and read more of this story. So be careful about who you surround yourself with. And it's interesting because we might say, well, 
I don't surround myself with those type of people. I try to steer clear of those people. I don't have very many suspicious or critical people around us. I would say we probably have access to more suspicious critical people than anybody in the history of the world. Because if you have a smartphone, if you have a social media account, if you have a Facebook, if you have an Instagram, if you have a network news station, you actually are surrounded more than any other time in history by suspicious, critical people constantly warning you of the boogeyman. They are out to get you. They are coming to spy. They are going to destroy your land. Constantly bombarded with that. This happened to me um, within the last couple of years. There's a few people that I love them, but I was having a conversation. I'm like, yeah, did you guys watch the football games this weekend? And they're like, no, I quit watching the NFL. I'm boycotting it. And now, listen, I do not like the kneeling. I'm not a Colin Kaepernick fan. I don't like all of that stuff. But I coached football for a long time. And I love to watch the game. And I don't like any of that stuff. And I tuned it out. But this person made, to, made sure to tell me, oh, you got to boycott that. you got to turn your back on the NFL. It's bad news. They're doing all this stuff. I don't judge them for that. I understand where they're coming from. But I'm not going to give up something like that over a petty issue. I mean, I'll mute it, I'll tell my kids I don't necessarily agree with it, and here is why. But those are the kind of things that I, don't, I just don't think we need to get caught up in. Sure, we should be wise. Sure, we, we should be aware. But I don't think we need to be afraid of everything that comes our way. So, it says, Hanun took David's servants. Even though these counselors were wrong, Hanun listened to them. He shaved their head, he shaved their beards, and he cut off their clothes at the waist. This would be strictly to humiliate some of his finest men. If you were shaved, if you were without a beard, it was a sign that you were not a free man. So no beard, head shaved, no clothes especially. The shame that these men come back with, it was a shot across the bow for David. Verse five, when it was told David... He sent to meet them. He wanted to meet these guys that this happened to. For the men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. These guys are spitting in the face of David. They're mocking him. They're basically kind of calling him out, essentially maybe declaring war. David, always the shepherd, tells his men, You guys are fine. We're going to take care of this. You guys go let your... <laughs> it's kind of funny. You guys go back there and let your beards grow. For some, it would take longer than others. Probably take me a little longer than some of you guys. But you guys let your beards grow, come back. But David will defend his men. It says, when David heard, he sent Joab and all the hosts of David. Verse 6, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, that's not a good thing, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, the king of Makkah with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. So they hired 33,000 soldiers when they realized they have insulted David over a misunderstanding. How many fights and arguments and marriages and wars and conflict because somebody was suspicious and critical didn't take the time 
to sit and have a conversation. 33,000 soldiers, most actually all of which will die. Verse seven, it says, when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. This is David's version of mess around and, and you're gonna find out from me. David's mighty men are seasoned warriors. This is like SEAL Team 6 about to be deployed. The, like if you've seen, anybody seen Top Gun? Like this is the top 1% that we're sending out, a force. Verse eight, the Ammonites came out and drew up in the battle, array, a battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rahab and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. Verse nine, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them, it's just at a formation, against the Syrians. Verse 10, the rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. So it's just talking about military strategy here. Verse 11, he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. We see something, a cool side here of Joab. He's kind of the rare spiritual glimpse of him encouraging them. He says, be of good courage, verse 12, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Verse 13, so Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. Verse 14, and when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and sent, entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Halam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer at their head. So Syrians kind of take some blows, partially defeat, they retreat, reconverge, come back. Again, it's kind of going through the battle here. Verse 17, and when it was told to David that they're reconvening, reconverging, he gathered all of Israel and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. David enters the battle. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. King David says, it's time for me to get involved. He heads out with the troops. King David is, so I coached football and basketball. In, in the world of coaching, King David is what we would call a dude. There's a dude. If, you're, if you've coached or you've played sports, there's usually a dude that can, you just say, that other team had a dude. That's why we lost. He took care of things. Like, he scored 25 points. He had 15 rebounds, seven blocks, and eight steals. King David, to this point, undefeated. Phenomenal leader, military genius, undefeated. He heads out with the troops. David has defeated the Syrians before, and of course the Syrians end up fleeing here as well. Verse 18, it says, the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots, which there'd be two people in each chariot, driver and an um, archer, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel. I bet they did. They lost over 40,000 people and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. So what we have is the Ammonites are still kind of in this, they're still in the battle. Everybody else has retreated. David now 
has just won, at this point, the greatest victory of his career. There's this interesting pause, because we'll see in the next chapter, that they end up going back out to fight. But there's this interesting pause here for the season, which is so interesting. There, some of it is so savage, and yet they, there's this humanness to war where they stop during this time of the year because of the winter and stuff. But David, once again, successful, kills these guys, the chariots, the horsemen, stops Shobach, the commander. And again, David has never lost a battle. This is the greatest battle of his career, over 40,000 men defeated. The kingdom now at 65,000 square miles, the greatest expanse of the kingdom is at this point under David's reign. He is, at this moment, at his high point as a military leader and king of Israel, which is interesting considering, considering the, the timing of the next chapter. We now enter into chapter 11, where we have adultery, murder, lying, and an absolute failure of responsibility by King David as a leader. Chapter 11 is what Bible scholars call a proof of divine origin because no other religion or any other legend would include such failures of the hero. King David is completely exposed here. David's failures are all for for the whole world, for all of history to see. God does not ignore the sins of his people. Thankfully, they're brought out into the open and dealt with. So he's at the height of his success. He falls and he is never the same. And I think what's so sobering about this chapter is how contemporary this story is for us. As we look at a story of adultery, you can have people, especially talk with young people, and they're like, yeah, I mean, the Bible's kind of old and it seems outdated. And it, I mean, some of the stories, especially in the Old Testament, are kind of irrelevant for our time in 2022. Really? Adultery? I would say we've experienced this probably or seen this um, quite a bit in the world. And especially, I would take you back to 2009. Does anybody in here know who Eldrick Woods is? Raise your hand if you know who Eldrick Woods is. Very famous. Some people call him Tiger Woods. Yeah. Some people call him Tiger. Um, in 2009, he was in his early 30s. He was 14 years into his professional PGA career. And at that point, he had won 14 major golf tournaments. The record was held by Jack Nicholson at 18, who was retired. And everybody was like, man, Tiger is a lock. If you don't know what a major golf tournament is, there's four a year. If you win one, it pretty much cements you in history. Even one, it's like winning the Heisman Trophy. You got the Masters and the PGA Championship and the US Open and British Open. And he, at this point, in his early 30s, has 14. It's just unheard of. Like, he's gonna far surpass any record at this point. I remember following him um, and just, man, every time he was on, everybody was glued to the TV watching how good he was. And then he had a car accident. And it's like, where was he going? Why was he drunk or whatever it was? And then why is he going through these issues? And why is he being investigated? And as more and more news coverage started to come out, they uncovered that Tiger Woods had been involved 
even though he was married with two kids, in multiple affairs, cheating on his wife, all across the country, multiple affairs. That was in 2009. In the 14 years from 2008 until now, you know how many majors he has won? In 14 years, he won 14. In the next 14, he has won one. He has had multiple car accidents. He has had multiple back and knee surgeries. His marriage dissolved. He lost millions of dollars to his ex-wife. And he has won one major golf tournament. There are repercussions. We reap what we sow. We have seen it. We live in a world and we are surrounded in a world that, that glorifies sexual sin. It parades it in front of us like there is never any consequence and that couldn't be further from the truth. Netflix, social media, porn, trans drag shows for children in Texas. Like it gets just thrown in everybody's face like there is never ever an issue. And the statistics would say there are several people in here who have dealt with the effects of adultery and still to this day feel the pain from it. The rise of a sexualized culture is so common now, there are different phrases for relationships like poly, open, moral, open. There are just numerous names for these relationships. Here's what's super interesting to me. Psychologists have studied the effects of adultery. I apologize if this is painful for some of you because I've met with some of you over in those offices, as Mark and as Matt has, and some of you have met and counseled with other people, and it is a painful topic. By God's grace, we're able to discuss and heal and move on with it. But psychologists have shown victims of adultery experience the same, have the same impact and experience the same things as losing someone close to them from, to death. They say the, tr- the trauma the pain and the hurt that accompanies adultery is like having somebody close to you die. On the LCU chart, life-changing units, that, uh, that's 100, that's the top, losing somebody close to you. Adultery is like right there with it. That's how much it impacts people, and yet our culture acts like it's a joke. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse one. In the spring of the year, In the time when kings go out to battle, interesting, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. So they finished the war, coming back out of the season here. But David remained at Jerusalem. Not smart. Now, normally you could forgive somebody of David's position. He's 50, he's pretty successful. I mean, if you're a CEO of a company or an owner or whatever, You're not doing every single job, of course. You don't go to every single thing, of course. But this is different. It says very specifically, this is the time of year when kings go out to battle, but David remained at Jerusalem. It's called selfish passivity. It's where you selfishly pass on what you're supposed to engage in. Men have a propensity for this. It is our weakness disengaged, irresponsible men have led to a lot of the problems that our nation faces right now. 
what we are facing right now is the result of a lot of these lack of leadership. Marriage, a disengaged, selfish man passing on his responsibility. Parenting in the workplace, in the community. I would say in politics. We, um, this isn't like a shameless plug or anything, but this is um, something that I want to make you aware of. We, this is something that really bothers me in dealing with families, seeing men who are fully capable of biblically leading their families and biblically um, pouring into their wives and pouring into their kids, not doing that. And so I want to encourage them. I want to bring in guys that say, hey, man, listen, we've got a real enemy, and you can do this. Like, you can do it. We're here to support each other. We, we actually started a thing called Game Changers, and it's just, you know, it's the, I guess it's the coach in me, but like raising up kids and raising a home and a family and actually being somebody who's trying to change the game in our community. And we had over like 135 guys come to our very first one a few weeks ago. It was, it was a great time. Mike Vorberg is back there. He's a detective here locally. He spoke and it was amazing just making people aware of what is in our community and encouraging men to lead. And man, listen, the wives want that. They want that. The kids want that. Our community wants that. Our church wants that. We have our next one coming up on July 10th. Registration is open for it. We're going to have a barbecue before. We have axe throwing. We have a University of Oregon assistant football coach. So we're going to eat meat, throw axes, listen to a football coach, and do guy stuff. So please, it's open to high school on up. So the whole goal is to encourage men to lead biblically in whatever environment they're in. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch because he's not at at war like he should be and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? He sees her, he inquires about her. And you know, 1 Corinthians uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, when you're tempted, God will provide a way out. And David has three barriers here that kind of come his way, and he runs right through all of them. Wait, it's like, wait, isn't that Bathsheba? Isn't that the daughter of Eliam? Isn't that the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? You know who she is, right? Eliam and Uriah, David's mighty men. Eliam's father is one of David's like mentors, a counsel to him. And David just blows right through all those barriers. Verse four, so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. I mean, he lay with her like they were naked and passionately kissing. They, this, this doesn't describe how bad this is. David takes another's man, another man's wife, he takes her clothes off, he has sex with her. It says now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That just lets us know that now after this, we know for sure that this will be David's child. It says then she returned to her house. And verse five, and the woman conceived and she sent and told David that I am pregnant. There's no debate, it's David's. Verse six, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Verse eight, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. 
And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. This is David, is small talking. He's kind of, he's being fake. He doesn't care about the war. He's plotting lies. He's trying to set this up so he can get out of it. Verse nine, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Verse 10, when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. He's just an upright dude, just an absolute stallion of a man. And think how evil this is. David is willing to lie to Uriah. He's willing to ask Bathsheba to lie to Uriah. He's willing to have Uriah support his son for the rest of his life and ask Bathsheba to look at this child and look at her husband for the rest of her life and lie about what has happened. David is putting them in this position. Lie upon lie upon lie. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Again, he does not go down. David now has caused Uriah to get drunk. Even as a drunk man, Uriah shows better judgment and is more honorable in this moment than King David. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah packs his death sentence and never glances at it. In the letter, he writes, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Uriah again delivers his own death orders. We have no reason really to believe that Joab has really any knowledge of what has happened. He may think at this moment that Uriah has actually done something deserving of this. He, he probably doesn't know. Um, not that he would disobey the orders, but there's no way to really know for sure that he knew this. It says, verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he tells the instructor, or the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say to him back, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. He's figuring out how to communicate through the messenger, mission accomplished. This is what you'll tell him. He's gonna ask you why. Surely this guy would be like, man, isn't David gonna be mad and wonder why we did this and why Uriah's dead and all this? And he's like, just tell him this. So a little code here, verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, 
Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So cold, so cold by David, blinded by his sin. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Next chapter, we're gonna see how much she actually loved him and how much her husband loved her. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that is an understatement. David covets, commits adultery. He lies, he murders. You can go through the list and prove how David has broken every single one of the Ten Commandments. Every single commandment David breaks. In one chapter, one single chapter, we see every single commandment broke. His life becomes an absolute train wreck from this point forward. 35 years of ministry destroyed. Destroyed. In a selfish moment of passion. It's amazing how easy it is to wreck a reputation and how hard it is to build. I tell young people this all the time. Man, you can absolutely destroy a reputation in a few minutes and take a lifetime to repair it. Many people in this area have witnessed leaders fall. A lot of us have come from a church where we experienced something like this nationally. We've seen it happen, happen a lot, it seems, in the past couple years. It's heartbreaking. And the ripple effect from it just seems never ending. I mean, the fallout, the conversations, um, our, our church from 17 years ago, there are still conversations to this day from what happened and the effects of it. I meet with families, marriages, kids. People will carry the handicap from it the rest of their lives and deal with it. I don't mean to make light of the, the situation at all, but there is a little bit of a redneck phase in our area. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And David experiences that. Galatians 6-7 says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. A man sows, so shall he reap. The re results of David's sin. His baby died. His beautiful daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother Amnon. This is all following this. Amnon was murdered by Tamar's full brother Absalom. Absalom came to hate his father so much for his moral failure that he leads a rebellion with Bathsheba's resentful grandfather. If David could have seen his future, I don't believe there is any way he would have followed through with this. No way. So as we kind of wind this down, there's, there's just three things that I want to cover here that I want to look at. How did this happen? How can we prevent it? And then what can we learn from this chapter? So how did this happen? It's interesting because it seems shocking. But if we take a closer look, it might not be actually as shocking as we thought. And it's probably a great lesson for us to learn here. As great as David is, he has a weakness. It's in an area where he lacks discipline. 2 Samuel chapter 5 tells us, after David assumes power in Jerusalem, 
it says, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. I'm the king. I'm going to take more wives and more concubines. And it's almost like a footnote. And it kind of just gets glossed over because we have a new king. And it's exciting now. It gets a little bit overlooked. But Deuteronomy 17 says there's a standard for Hebrew kings. And it commanded them to refrain from three things. One, acquiring many horses. No problem. Not David's struggle. Number two, do not take many wives. Number three, don't accumulate much silver and gold. Matt last week talked about how King David was the most generous person in the Bible. Not a problem for him. Generous. Don't take the horses. No problem. Taking many wives? Hmm. David's collection of wives culturally was accepted. It was legal. But by God's standard, it wasn't okay. He becomes desensitized to this weakness that he has, and he pays dearly for it. Later, he writes in Psalm 139. He learns from this because later in Psalm 139, David writes this. It's like he remembers that, man, I, I'm not invincible because he says, search my heart, O Lord, lest there be any wickedness in it. And that is a great thing for us as believers. When, when things are smooth and we're feeling good and we feel like we're kind of doing good, maybe we're getting some compliments. Lord, search my heart. Search my heart. Most of our weaknesses will have to do with our eyes and our tongue, especially for men what we allow ourselves to view, the conversations we allow ourselves to have. So as we consider those things, how do we prevent these things from happening? I just wrote down um, three things. I know there's, there's several things, but three boundaries. Boundaries are important. I mean, we talk about our eyes and our tongue. What we see and say matters. Social media, screens, workplace, what you click on, what you like what you share with somebody. There was a couple of things early on in our marriage that were important to us. Um, we're so old and have been married so long, Facebook kind of came out and was becoming popular. Um, my wife and I had um, former, like, silly, like, high school boyfriend, girlfriends that reached out and just wanted to be friends on there, and it was new to us. And I remember we both addressed it immediately. We're like, this is kind of weird, like... It's probably not a big, big deal, I don't know, but we as a couple sat down and talked about it, and we're like, I don't think we want to open the door for that. So we just declined to accept those. And maybe it wasn't weird, because I actually, sadly, had an uncle who rekindled a relationship from high school in his 60s. Him and this new wife both left their partners, and they met on Facebook. And I like, I don't think that that could have ever happened to me, but I'm so thankful that God, by his grace, gave us some wisdom in that moment. I remember um, working in a place, I was talking with one of the guys here, and some of us guys can work in some places where there's some pretty coarse language and um, some conversations that aren't great. And I remembered, I was just like, I mean, I was foolish before, I'm still foolish, but especially foolish before I got saved and married and had a great wife. And I probably engaged in some thing, conversations that were not great. But I remember thinking when I was married, I'm like, I'm not going to talk about my wife the way I hear guys talk about their wife. She's not those things. She, like, she is beautiful and she's to be cherished. And like, I don't, I don't want to project something on her that, is, that I don't believe. 
And so like there was this year where I had this job and some of the guys, and you know, I mean, it's probably harmless. I'm sure they had great marriages, but there were just comments and things and I just would never engage in it. And I didn't, didn't fault them or judge them or whatever, but I had this person come up to me at the end of that year, this woman, and she said, I've been watching you this year. And I was like, oh, great. And she was a little bit older and she said, I appreciate the way you respect your wife. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, and I, I wasn't doing that for anybody to, to notice, but it encouraged me that it was something that was valuable, especially to women. Set some good boundaries for your eyes. Set some good boundaries for your tongue. I think 22 years in now, I'm like, man, I, I can't picture this happening to us, going through something like this. But King David was older than me when he committed this sin. And surely he felt the same way. Second thing, accountability. Have people to answer to. We have always had an open phone, open computer, open text, open, like everything in our relationship. Anybody in my home can pick, like the kids can pick up my phone, they can open my computer, they can go on my Google, they can go on anything that I have. We can scroll each other. Sometimes we'll scroll each other's text messages just to find out, like we haven't had a chance to talk. Like, oh, you talked to them. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Like they had their baby or whatever. Like completely open and transparent with each other, friendships, with our children. One of the things that I loved when I saw Edgewater built coming from where I came from is that every office door was glass. That is awesome. That is wisdom right there. The third thing is discipline, and I was, this is so important, especially, especially for men. I think Matt is here. I was hoping he wasn't going to be here because I wanted to talk about him. I'll tell you right now, God has blessed Matt because of his discipline. He is disciplined. He is a godly disciplined leader. He gets here before everybody else and is studying if he's not here, he's at home studying, but he is disciplined and he walks out his faith in a disciplined manner. And there might be people that say, well, oh, you're so good at that. You're so good, such a good teacher or whatever. He is a gifted teacher, but God has called him to something and he is disciplined about it. It's not the time of season when the kings go out to war and he's avoiding that. And God has blessed him for it. Steph Curry works on his three pointers. Tom Brady works on throwing touchdown passes. And Matt Heverly works on studying the Bible. Very disciplined. In fact, as I was talking through this chapter with my wife, I was thinking, you know, um, something that Matt said from Sunday's message, if you didn't get a chance to hear it, please listen to it. I was thinking, man, what is the number one way to prevent adultery from happening? Like, is it, like when you're in the moment or like when it comes up, like how can you prevent it? And I was just like, you just don't get in that spot. Like you do all the work to stay away from being on the rooftop when somebody is bathing. Like you do everything you can to just not be in that moment. And, and Matt used a phrase uh, this weekend. What did he say? Set the goal when you're strong. Every single person who's got married set the goal right then. They were strong. They were in love. They were committed. Set the goal right then that we will not allow ourselves to find ourselves in a moment of weakness like that. Another thing that can come from this, um, for some of you, you'll think this is kind of a ridiculous question, but for somebody who's um, walked with new believers and young people especially, and maybe if you have kids or young people in your lives that you're uh, discipling, can Christians sin? 
So the New Testament, when you're a believer, it talks more about being us being saints than it does talk about us being sinners. So can a Christian sin? Well, of course we know that we can. First John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and pur- purify us of all unrighteousness. The difference is, for the Christian, is our response to sin. Now, there is a, there is a limit because... 1 John 3, 6 says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. That's important in this day and age for us to understand because there are people living in sin who are claiming to be Christians and saying that they are forgiven. And yet this chapter right here, 1 John 3, 6 says, if you keep on sinning, you have not seen him or known him. You can't do it. It's like a fish out of water flopping on the shore. You sin You need to get back in the water to live. You cannot continue sinning as a Christian and be okay with it. The heart is what makes it. It's all in the heart. David's response to this sin is written in Psalm 51. Listen to what David's response is after he has been convicted. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. That's actually happening here tonight. This is prophetic of David in Psalm 51. I will teach people. My mistakes will teach people not to go down this path. Psalm 51, 16, he continues, you do not delight, O Lord, in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. I would do that. That would be the easy thing to do. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David's response to his sin is the difference. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. That to you, God, is more of a delight than sacrifice and burnt offerings. In closing, what does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about God? He's powerful. He is not to be played with. He's serious about sin. He's right. He is just. He is holy. There are natural consequences to sin. We reap what we sow. Tonight and in the coming weeks, we'll continue to follow David's story and we're gonna see that God is merciful and he is gracious and he is generous and he is loving and he is a provider, but there are natural consequences to David's actions. We see that God has a kingdom. We hear it over and over and over. I love that Matt constantly talks about God's kingdom and in that kingdom, Jesus sits on the throne. And he invites all of us to become a part of this royal bloodline similar to King David. But I think if we're all honest and we think about David's life 
and we consider his place on the throne. David continues to be king after this. And then for another 20 plus years, he is still sitting on the throne. He seems disqualified to be a leader. And it's because I have a filter that I'm reading the Bible through. This idea of a king and a kingdom is kind of in conflict with what we live in. In 2022 USA, with over 200 years of representative democracy, a republic of states, elections, our mind sees this a little bit differently. We choose and reward based on merit and performance. Most modern Western governments, they select leaders on merit. Monarchy versus meritocracy. Big difference. You're appointed because of your heritage or you've earned it on your merit. In a monarchy, cannot change your, your heritage. You're a part of a royal bloodline. In a democracy, you can change your election status. You can be in or out based on what you've done. You can be canceled in a moment. And as a Christian in God's kingdom, all judgment falls on Jesus, unconditionally accepted. That's me. But in my kingdom, in our kingdom, in our democracy, in all these world systems, all judgment falls on us, conditionally accepted or canceled based on our performance. David, cancel him. That lady, cancel her. That guy, cancel him. Cancel them. Canceled. Look what they did. Of course, there are consequences to sin. Of course, we reap what we sow. But listen, as Christians, this is critically important for us to get. Maybe you haven't committed adultery, but we have all found ourselves in a place of disappointment by our own doing or by somebody else's. Either we need forgiveness or we need to give forgiveness. Where is our heart? Psalm 51, 16, 17. Is it a broken and contrite heart? Listen, do not lose sight of this. You are still a daughter of the king. You are still a son of the king. You have a royal bloodline if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You are an heir to a king who sits on a throne and has the cattle on a thousand hills. The Bible says, repent of your ways, be cleansed of all unrighteousness. There are too many people I see stuck who are saying, this is who I am, this is who I've always been, and this is who I will always be. Think about this. David did every single thing he was not supposed to do. Every single thing. He broke every commandment. He suffered greatly for it. It is an absolute tragedy of a story. There are lots of words we can use to describe him. Warrior, musician, loyal, courageous, shepherd, loser, adulterer, liar, murderer. But there are no better words to describe King David than loved, forgiven, and redeemed. And so it is for us as well. Let's pray. Father God, may we learn May we warn others. May we not laugh at sin. May we not gloss over it. May we take it serious. And may we also know there is one who forgives. There is one who cleanses. There is one who can take a contrite heart and redeem and make whole and make new. By your spirit, God, 
I have witnessed miracles of reconciliation and forgiveness. Things that should not, that just don't make sense by your spirit. I've seen it happen. I pray if there's anybody here tonight who has struggled with this, who needs help with this, whether it's forgiveness or confession, I pray that they would talk with somebody here, that they would link up with Titus too, that they would talk with a pastor. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, uh, Father God, for your son, Jesus. I pray that you would bless the rest of this night in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. God bless you.